everybody. Welcome to Your Team with Sue and Steph. I'm Sue. And I'm Steph. We are the co-founders and owners of Your Teen Media, the resource for parenting tweens and teens. And today we're talking to Carrie James and Emily Weinstein, Harvard researchers and co-authors of Behind Their Screens, What Teens Are Facing and Adults Are Missing. Emily and Carrie connected with more than 3,500 teens to bring stories and data together to reframe what teens are up against and what teens want adults to understand. So I just, I want to be upfront, like transparent. Transparency is all important here, right? So what I want to say is that the minute we went to record this podcast, the people who take care of my lawn came and had full-blown blowers throughout my yard to get rid of the leaves for fall. And then people came to put beams up in my basement because my basement is falling. The, The ceiling is falling. And they cut beams So the noise you're hearing, it is a miracle of coincidences that they all ended up here right now today while we were podcasting. So as always, before we get to the interview, we're going to have a little chat about some of the things we learned and some of the things we struggle with. So Steph, first of all, I really love the word technoference. Mm, Once we learned how to pronounce it, I like it too. You don't need much of a definition. So you'll get to learn the definition later and you'll understand it a little bit when we talk about what that means in our own lives. So I have this big one. One of my kids in particular, while I'm talking to them, they are looking at their phone and they're having, they think they would say they're having a conversation with me. And if I ever say anything like, hey, they say, well, I I heard everything you said. And the reality is that at at what's going on is I feel hurt. And then I'll add to this, I do the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. No one, as my friend Heather says, show me the innocent one. Yeah. So I remember years ago coming into the family room one day, and I feel like this kid would have been in high school. And the TV was on, there was a laptop on their lap and a phone nearby. (laughs) And I was like, oh my God. Well, now substitute that child for me. Because I do the same thing, right? I've got so many devices, so many things going at once. It's ridiculous. This is what I was thinking about. Like, how do we sit still? Does anyone know how to sit mm. still anymore? And I yeah, don't that's even a good mean, one. I don't even mean doing nothing because often it's like, like your son, you're watching TV, but then you also have the phone and the computer there. And so it's so weird. Like if we're watching a show and it goes to a commercial, I, I f- don't know how to, s- I don't want to watch the commercial. Duh, that's a waste of time, Right. But but I I also like feel like I'm gonna play a game. I'm gonna play a game while the the commercial's on. I'm gonna write an email while the commercial. What yeah. happened to sitting still? <laughs> so I have a good story on this, and it I I didn't think of it till this moment. I was on a plane a couple years back. It's pre pandemic, I believe, and I look over, and the woman either sitting next to me or two seats over, no book in her lap, no device, and I see her reach for like the um. Oh my goodness. Like the pamphlet about like emergency exits, you know, like in front of her. I see her reach for that. Then she's just staring out the window. And I was like, wait a minute. (laughs) Is this this how she's flying? Like all of a sudden it hits me that like, there's no book coming out. There's no iPad coming out. I'm like, wow. I really wish I could go back to that moment because I think I could have learned a lot from her. 
Well, so the thing is, I get nauseous on planes now. Not for like the hour, not the hour flight, but the longer flights. Okay. And I I went to visit kids, and I forgot to take Bonane, which is one. I don't even know if that's how you pronounce it. One of the, one of those. Um, if you get airsick, and I got on the plane, and I was like, oh, I can't watch a movie. I can't read a book. And I was that woman. And I <gasps> I closed my eyes, and I had a whole internal kind of experience of like. <gasps> What will I think about? Where will I put myself right now? Oh my because God. It was so many hours. And I could You're not. You're like otherworldly now. <laughs> I was for that moment. I, I don't know if I could do it again, but the alternative was vomiting, which I have done. And it's so not appealing. So I could, I just had to get my headspace inside me. And I, I, could, I knew I wasn't going to fall asleep. I was too anxious that I forgot to take the medication. But um, it, it is a weird experience because when do we do that? Like forced, I would never be doing that. Sitting with my own thoughts for four and a half hours with my eyes closed, like so bizarre. I do try and catch little moments. I've done this where this is definitely a COVID thing and it's uh, where I can. I was doing a lot of calls on our patio when we had lots of people coming and going and people on Zoom calls and in class and all that stuff. And we had, uh, well, I don't know, some kind of router put in where it extended the Wi-Fi to the patio. And I could get really good Wi-Fi out there. So I would sit out there, do my Zoom calls. It was removed from everybody else who was trying to study and be in classes and listening to me talking, right? All that stuff. And I need to recapture it because I would then get up from the table and go sit in one of our, like, at a, like a leisure chair, and just close my eyes and try and process. And like, when I was good at it, I was really good at it. Or I was, or I didn't do it at all. Do you know what I mean? Where like the calls were back to back and it was frantic. And I realized like I wasn't leaving myself time to like think about the call and think about like, okay, well, how can we solve that? You know, I talked to a client and I'm like, okay, let me just give, have some thinking time. I just need time to think. The thing that changed thinking time is Zoom. Because yes. prior to Zoom, we we drove somewhere and we debriefed right. either alone or with somebody on the way home. Yeah. And so like you could go from, a meeting that was over at three and make your next meeting for 3.30 because you couldn't be there at 3.01. And exactly. Zoom, you literally could go, well, I'm going to get off another call at three. I could get on at like 3.01. Yeah, it's true. I think of all of our, our drives back from our podcast studio. Yeah. Do you have any bad ideas from this, uh, our Hannah, our producer? But we did have a 35, 40-minute drive each way, and we solved a lot of issues. <laughs> Both ways. Yeah, yeah, we sure did. Okay, mm-hmm. so one mm-hmm. other thing that you're going to hear in the in the podcast from the experts is how manipulated we are by the gaming industry, by the social media, by all of these things. And it, it just reminded me of like how when you watch certain TV shows, and I can think of two of them. One was Law & Order, and I can't think the other one was Suits. And both of them, like Law & Order, when they do a one of those marathons, it starts immediately and the 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 murder or whatever the the injury is happens like before anything else happens and then you can't pull yourself away right and then in i think it was suits like the storyline for the next episode would start they they'd have the incident in in the episode you were watching so you're like okay we got to go we got to turn this off and then and you can't because you just, now you well you can but you know so that's what our kids are living with all the time like they go on YouTube and it goes right into the next video. They're scrolling on some social media and it just never ends. Like there's never an end. And gaming, I think it's intentionally never done, right? You know, I always think of quieting my mind. Like how do I quiet my mind? And this idea where, 
think of all the things we've learned over the years, whether it's breathing exercises or a meditation. And it's just because if you're successful, (laughs) blocked out the noise or the scrolling of everything else. Because I really can take a few deep breaths and feel significantly different. So I kind of want us to end on this. Like, I thought this was such a fascinating comment they made because it made me realize how we, many of us go at parenting the wrong way. We think it's a relationship, implying that there's mutuality to it, right? And one of the things they said was that our kids want our undivided attention, which is, it's kind of touching and lovely. But then the next comment was, even if they can't give us theirs. So like the fact that my kid is on their phone while I'm talking to them and even kind of going like, oh, you know, like the reactions to, so they're (laughs) not undivided attention to me. It doesn't mean that as a parent, I'm not supposed to be better than that. Which, right. It's really irksome. <laughs> I know. Wait, that is a great topic for us, Sue. That Friday. is a great topic. Things we're supposed to be better at. Oh, my God. Okay. okay. That is so a great now, topic. now we have a topic for our next Friday Live. Up next is our conversation with Carrie James and Emily Weinstein. And it is excellent. We can't wait for you to join us. talked about the cost of college a lot over the years, having sent eight kids collectively to college. With each kid, the cost got higher and higher. Dan and I started to look at the cost-benefit analysis. What's the value of the degree and how can we make it more affordable? We became more discerning as college consumers. We wanted a way to figure out whether it was worth it and to make more informed decisions. And now there is a brand new tool. It's called the Student Debt Smarter Affordability Calculator. The calculator, available at studentdebtsmarter.org slash YTM, uses four criteria. A school your student might want to attend, one possible major, the year they want to start, and where they might want to live after graduation. The calculator then projects a starting salary and budget to give you and your student a realistic view of the amount that can reasonably be repaid once they graduate. You can explore different options by swapping out other possible majors, colleges, and locations. Your student will get great insight into how each of these factors impacts affordability. Also, the calculator is a tool to start a conversation with your kid. Just take a look at your kid's face when they start to understand the complex financial landscape of paying for college. Student loans might seem like a great solution for affording college, but we've got to help our kids really understand how these loans can impact their future. You'll want to bring up ways to make college more affordable with resources like scholarships and grants. Keep in mind, our kids can make bad decisions when they don't understand the impact of college debt. The Student Debt Smarter Affordability Calculator is designed to demystify this process, adding transparency and easy-to-understand resources to better inform young students as they take on important decisions that will impact their financial future. So start your college journey together on the right foot Visit studentdebtsmarter.org slash YTM and start the conversation today. That's studentdebtsmarter.org slash YTM. Hey there. I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. 
We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon. Carrie James and Emily Weinstein are the co-authors of Behind Their Screens, a book that takes adults on a journey through the hidden lives of teens growing up with social media. It reveals what teens think and why they make the decisions they do. And for us here today, what teenagers want adults to understand so they can help teens navigate this very tricky landscape. Carrie and Emily, thanks for being here. Can you tell us about your research for this book? 3,500 teenagers, right? In the research? And a teen advisory board. So how do you go about conducting research with 3,500 plus teenagers? Well, this research started with a big survey, which is where that huge number initially came from. So we were actually working with our partners at Common Sense Media on some updates to lessons that they have as part of their digital citizenship curriculum. And we were working with them to try and make sure that we had a really good understanding of what the most current issues on teens' minds were. What were the issues that they really wanted support around? Um, And so we did this large survey of 15 different middle school and high schools across 10 different states, and we surveyed their students. And what actually ended up happening was we had this question, what worries you about today's digital world? We honestly added this question sort of at the 11th hour, and it wasn't a key, I mean, it wasn't like meant to be this big, giant expose. We just wanted to make sure, okay, if it's cyberbullying and digital drama, let's make sure we understand that that needs to be covered and how it needs to be covered. So we did this survey, and as we started looking through the responses to that question in particular, Carrie and I were sitting in our office, and we just kept looking at each other going, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, we have been doing research on this topic for 10 plus years. And the insights we are hearing about the things, the worry points that kids have were stopping us in our tracks. So that's where the advisory board came in. Carrie and I are traditionally qualitative researchers. So we just love like getting voices in the mix and really hearing how people think. And so we assembled this team advisory board of 22 teens to help us actually interpret the data and the survey responses that we had and really add a lot of rich context to the kinds of things that we were seeing and hearing in the survey. So that's a great lead-in to the next question that we have, is that do teens understand that they're being manipulated by social media and gaming? You obviously got this inside view that you just alluded to. So tell us what they think. Well, I'll jump in and start out here. I mean, teens understand a lot more than we give them credit for. One of the big top-level findings from this worries question is that teens actually share a lot of the worries that adults have about growing up in a world with digital technologies. They 
worry about like footprints lasting forever. They understand and feel those pulls to the screen. And that's what your question is getting at. Like, and they don't want to feel dysregulated, but it's really complicated the reasons why they end up pulled more often than not. And, you know, I think we can probably appreciate those reasons, those design features. And so there is some level of recognition. We have these incredible quotes from teens saying like, TikTok just keeps pulling me in. So there is this recognition. I can't seem to stop scrolling it. And, you know, something about it just, just keeps my eyes to the screen. And, reflecting on and being alert to what they're missing out on because of it. Like, I want to be doing other things, but I'm constantly tethered to this device. So teens do worry more and they are alert to the design features more than we give them credit for. And there are lots of reasons why their behavior won't always align with those worries. Carrie said that we had these really powerful quotes and those were not just one-off examples, but I would say pretty consistently what we heard is that teens were much more aware of the ways they feel the pull and their experiences of, I feel like I need I need to check my phone more than I want to. They're not always aware of the design features that are actually contributing to that pull. And that's really important because there's actually now some pretty compelling evidence that talking to teens about the design features of technology is an evidence-based practice for boosting their motivation to change their tech habits and to get more control. So actually naming features like hey, have you ever noticed that we never reach the end of our newsfeed? You know, that there's always this idea of infinite scroll, that there's always more content or autoplay, that, you know, you finish a YouTube video and the next one starts automatically. And actually saying to teens things like, it actually didn't used to be that way, but the tech companies, the designers figured out that if they remove that natural stopping cue, that pause point of like your newsfeed just ending, that you would keep going. And did you know that notification flags are red on purpose because there is something just irksome about you want to get that red flag off your screen. And as a result, you're going to click it and open it and figure out, try and figure out what's going on. And now suddenly the tech, the tool has won your attention. So really starting to verbalize some of these design features that are meant to pull us in is a really powerful way to get kids more aware of some of the design features. And then to say to them, like, what do you think of that? And how are some of the ways that you make sure that your tech habits stay in bounds and are aligned with the ways you want to be using your tech? That particular framing is so interesting because of course there's this impulse to say, to, to just lead with the assumption that many of teens' tech habits are not in bounds. But when we recognize that there are ways that they are trying and that, you know, they, they, they actually have the intention to have a healthy relationship with tech, even when it looks to us like they don't, it really pivots the kind of conversations we have. Are all teens having the same struggles with tech? Well, I mean, it varies incredibly by young person. I mean, I think it's fair to say if you talk to any teen, that they would recognize something about technology that's hard and a lot of things that are great. But not every every teens are not a monolith. They're not just having this one experience. It's super important. So you referenced orchids and dandelions, and that is a really powerful metaphor. And it connects with this concept in various science called, sciences called differential susceptibility. So it sounds like very, very complicated, but essentially what it means is that teens and all of us as humans are differently susceptible 
to various risks, to the risk of, you know, becoming an alcoholic, for example, to the risks of, of dangerous driving. Our topic is really media research and the ways in which media can pull someone, for example, into a toxic rabbit hole and leave them feeling with low self-esteem and low body image. So teens are differently susceptible to risks that come up in digital life. The metaphor of orchids and dandelions really helps us understand, especially if you think as parents and you have more than one child, I have two children, and you know that you know if you have more than one child, they're really different. Kids are really different from one another. And so the metaphor is, uh, the floral metaphor, is that orchids are really, really susceptible to an array of different environmental conditions. So they're, they're very delicate, much more vulnerable, whereas dandelions are relatively hardy flowers that can weather an array of different conditions. So if you have two kids, one might be more orchid-like and they have really sensitive moments. And another one might be more like a dandelion and have, you know, like they may experience the highlight reels of Instagram in a way that, you know, they, they shrug and think like, well, yeah, everybody shows their best side online. And then another more orchid-like teen would look at that and say, you know, everyone's having, leading a better life than me. So really tune in, tuning into the particular and who is the individual kid in front of you. And then not just, you know, what are their strengths and their vulnerabilities, but what content are they looking at? How are they engaging? So teens aren't all alike, but screens and their screen time isn't all alike. This is hitting really close to home today, listening to Carrie talk about this, even though we talk about it all the time, because I have an orchid upstairs that is really struggling. <laughs> and I was, I was actually thinking yesterday, I don't think I understand the right way to take care of this orchid. Like I'm great with my succulents there. I know how to keep them alive, but man, like whatever I'm doing to this orchid does not seem to be working for the orchid. And I really think that actually that is so true in terms of what we see in the media research around screen time and social media and kids. Like for some kids, really probably the status quo of what your instincts are around digital parenting are fine. You have a good sense of what your kids need and you'll see when something is awry and they need a little extra whatever in a particular week. But I think that it's that this is really powerful because just like I had this moment yesterday with my orchid where I was like, whoa, I need a pause and I need to understand a little bit better about what is going on here that is just like in this environment that it's not working for this particular plant. And many, much of our research suggests that actually when kids go through moments where they're more vulnerable, when kids are more vulnerable to start, we do need a little more of an intentional pause to say like, okay, what does what is happening for this kid during the interaction with the technology that is amplifying their vulnerability or mitigating it? What do I need to do as a result? You have to love when your work supports your your day-to-day life where the crossover is just, yeah, palpable. Absolutely. And I, and I, you know, and I was going to like just make the direct connection to digital parenting. I mean, I think the reality is we parent our kids differently on a variety of fronts, which can be challenging because they notice when we're inconsistent across kids, especially if they're relatively close in age. But our digital parenting definitely needs to be keyed to the differences we see among their kids, their different susceptibilities to to risks associated with social media. And so I've I've parented my kids quite differently with respect to their phones and social media. Can you define technoference for us? Technoference is the fancy term in the academic research to talk about 
technology-related interference or disruption in the quality of our connections with one another. And two things about this. One is that there is this emerging body of research that substantiates what probably most of us know to be true, which is when we allow technology to constantly distract us and interrupt the quality of our connections, it has real impacts on our connections and on our kids' sense of warmth and closeness to us on in our partnerships, like with, you know, with our spouses and also in our friendships. And there are all different ways that we're starting to see the different kinds of effects of, of technoference. And so the ways that we manage tech-related disruptions really matter. These are obviously a feature of our world, but starting to recognize, like, if I have my phone on buzz and my kid is trying to get my attention and every three minutes, or maybe it's more frequent, I am looking away from what she's saying and I'm distracted or I'm like checking my email or whatever it is. I am sending a powerful message to her that whatever is on my screen is more important than the person in front of me, even if that's not my intention. The second thing I'll just say about technoference is that we heard loud and clear from teens in our research they really want our undivided attention, even as they really struggle to give it to us in return. Your research shows that kids want our attention and want conversation with us. And yet the message we get from our kids is so different. So where's the, how are the ships passing in the night? Well, I mean, one of the big things is that we often start our conversations in the wrong places. One like big headline really emerging from this research, especially our close collaboration with our youth advisory council, is that teens really want adult help. But we often start conversations, understandably so, with our sense of worry about, you know, we start conversations with, you know, what is it about Instagram that's like making you depressed? Why is TikTok pulling you into this rabbit hole? We, we really lead with the negatives. And that actually stops conversations, like real good conversations before they even get started. Because anything a teen says in response to that, they fear will only confirm our worst suspicions that social media is all bad. So we found that there's incredible power, even when we want to get to the hard stuff, there's incredible power to starting with the positives. Like a real power move is to ask kids like, what is so, what is, com- not, what, not what is so in a judgmental way, but what really is so compelling to you about TikTok? What are you seeing on your feed that just keeps you wanting to see more? And what are you learning and taking away from this? Same thing for Instagram and the variety of other things. What are the ways in which you're using technology to connect in meaningful ways with your friends that really on a day-to-day basis give you a sense of well-being and a sense of, of that genuine positive connection that you want in your life? So really leading with the negatives can derail our conversations from the start and lead kids not to open up to us about the stuff that's really tricky that they actually do want support around. So you can probably hear this also in our, in our questions. If we say to you, like, if we just said to you, like, so you, it seems like you're so addicted to your phone lately. Like what, what should we do differently so that you're not so addicted to your phone or how are you going to develop healthier tech habits? It's you're like immediately on the defensive. And if I start instead, which we have done now again and again and again, in so many different contexts, if I instead start by saying like, Hey Sue, tech habits are so hard to manage. Like what are some of the things that you're doing right now that are your best tech habits? What are like, what do you think you're doing? That's really working. And then you share that. And then I say, 
And what are some of the things that you're doing that you feel like you wish you could do differently or that you wish were going better? You have just had such a different kind of experience of me opening the conversation. And that habits is a great example, but just consistently, we kept hearing from teens, like every conversation with the adults just about tech feels like it starts from this place where I'm immediately on the def- on the defense. And because of that, I don't feel like they are assuming that I'm even trying or that I have good intentions. I feel like they're just waiting to hand down a new rule or restriction. And it's just all of that makes me just want to say, like, leave me alone. <laughs> Well, so I want to just point out that when the two of you are talking, Wendy Mogul wrote a book called Voice Lessons, and she wrote it because she realized when you tell people what to say, that's not the end of the story. It's how you say it. So Carrie, even when you started with how to start, you said, you could, you kind of said, well, you could use these same words, but say it differently. Say it with curiosity instead of judgment, right? So both of you got this very curious voice when you said it, and it was soothing. It was like inviting instead of like feeling like you were um, retreating from it. Okay, well, that is actually so cool because one of the big things that Carrie and I have had as a takeaway from this research is that adults are often forced into this role of being like a referee where our our entire job, we feel like as digital parenting kind of people is we are just like blowing the whistle when kids have too much screen time or when they misstep or when things go wrong. And we're in this constant, like the refereeing role. And one of the things that as a metaphor that really helped us was thinking about what would it look like if we shifted into being more like coaches? And if instead of just blowing the whistle and calling out when things go wrong, if our job was really about thinking about how we coach our kids so that like when they're out there playing in this digital world, like learning and growing, we recognize they're going to be hard plays, but we can be alongside them and we can help them kind of navigate and think through these things. And that mental pivot for us, it inherently changes the tone of your voice and you're suddenly not blowing your whistle. You're thinking about like, hey, come here, I have an idea for you. Or like, let's think about this together. I noticed that was really hard the way that person, you know, took the ball from you out there. Let's like, let's figure out what you're going to do. Tone of voice. (laughs) Tone of voice. (laughs) What's the most significant thing you learned from the teenagers? Oh, the most significant thing. Sue, that's such a hard question, but there, I mean, there are so many, but I'll jump into one and I'm sure maybe Emily will elaborate or bring us in a different direction. So one of the things that, you know, we're all really alert to right now is the adolescent mental health crisis. And, you know, teens are really struggling and this is just amplified over the past couple of years. But one of the, the one of the more hidden tolls to this crisis is that even if an individual teen isn't struggling themselves, they're more likely than ever to have someone in their network who is. And what this means growing up in a 24-7, like you can always be available world, is that you feel this sense that you need to be there for friends who are really struggling. If you have a close friend who is really having a hard time, there is that sense of, you know, technically you can be available around the clock. You can sleep with your phone under under your pillow at night, and many teens do for a variety of reasons, but that's one of them. And so we often 
you know, we often downplay or we, we dismiss technology as something that's like eroding empathy in our relationships without really tuning into the reality that empathy is a key source of why teens often will stay close to their phones. It's a key source of dilemmas that they face. If someone's not a close friend and then you see this digital cry for help unfolding in their Snapchat or Instagram story, immediately it raises puzzles about what you should do and how you should respond and reach out. That really took us aback to hear teen stories and struggles with that particular dynamic of growing up with technology. So let's take off. That's actually um, an excellent lead into one of our other questions, which has to do with mental health. So this idea of removing a phone from a teenager for some infraction, you know, whatever we want to call it, a punishment, a consequence, an infraction, what does that do like to a kid's mental, if they're already suffering, taking the phone away, is that something a parent should consider, not consider? Let's, let's walk down that path a little bit. What goes through your heads when you hear that? Yeah. So, you know, we're pretty careful not to say like, there's never a moment when actually like a break from technology could be helpful because we recognize that Families have so many different situations. And, you know, we have like had front row seats to to some kids who are just in acute mental health crises. And we appreciate that, like, it's a true crisis and figuring out what your kid needs and then being able to just, we're, we're all doing our best. So as, as moms, but also as researchers, like, let's just start with the fact that we really appreciate that there are different reasons for doing different things. But, oh my gosh, the knee-jerk reaction to just take away a kid's phone as a punishment, I think Carrie and I came away with such a sense of deep anxiety for kids about what that feels like. And you could just imagine this, like if I took your phone away, what that would do to you, it means like, okay, I'm like, I'm already thinking like, okay, I have to go take some, a kid to a doctor's appointment. I don't know where it is. Now I don't have ways. I don't have, I'm not, how am I going to call you if something goes wrong? But also a million other things are happening on my phone. I think that adults often think what kids are doing on their phone is just fun and games, but that is just not what we hear from kids. Like so much of this is about real feelings of pressure and responsibility they feel to stay on top of information from their friends, but also like notifications from their sports team and information from their job. And so much of it is happening with and through devices. So that's one thing. The other thing is that actually when when you look at the research on how kids manage hard situations and what helps them, a really interesting finding, and this comes from um, some of Elizabeth Englander's work, is that one of the single best things that kids say helps when they are feeling really bad is social support from friends. So what's actually really important, if you have a kid who's going through something and they're having a hard time, it's really important to think about what specific role the technology and their phone is playing. Is the tech a portal to being bullied or harassed or getting messages that are making them feel bad? Or is it that that stuff is happening but actually their way they're using their phone is to connect with cousins or friends from their summer camp or whatever who are actually giving them really essential social support. Is the content they're looking at making their mental health worse? Like you can imagine if you have a child who's struggling with an eating disorder, there's a huge difference between looking up images that are really like pro-anorexia, pro-bulimia content that are encouraging disordered eating patterns versus using your entire Instagram to curate and follow recovery-oriented accounts that give you ideas and inspiration on, on getting better and on recovering and having a different kind of relationship with your body. So 
We just, I think adults often have this impulse to just assume that technology is just this one thing. And that's just not the case. We have to really focus on like, what what kind of social interactions is my kid getting through this device? Are they supporting their my kid's mental health or undercutting it? And what kinds of content are they engaging with? And how is that playing a role too? Would a kid be able to assess that, Emily? Could they self-assess that? Carrie and I, I think, have pretty consistently found that when the conditions are right, and we can talk about what that means, that kids are really able to do that kind of thinking, especially with the right questions as prompts. Often, we have set up situations where they are demotivated from being honest and authentic with us and with themselves about it because they're scared about losing access to the device. But we have pretty consistently found that like 13 to 17-year-olds, we are so impressed And what's so cool is that when we ask them questions about what's not working for them or what's undermining their mental health, their answers are so specific and they talk about things that we would have never known that they might want or need an intervention around. I'm thinking about like one teen who said, you know, my worst habit right now is basically like obsessing over my boyfriend, like my boyfriend's location on SnapMap. And she was like, this is really, this is like really a problem. And if he's not responding for me, I'm like looking like, where is he? And I feel like this is like making me this kind of girlfriend I don't want to be. That is such a specific, interesting thing. We have teens say things like, I like, I'm monitoring, you know, whatever, like my, this person's follower count or like the, the nature of who's following them. And just these really specific, I'm like, I'm like lost on Venmo, just like looking at everyone else's transactions. And it's making me feel really bad about why I wasn't invited. These are the kinds of things that I think if, if I just asked you to make a list of 10 things you were worried about, they would not be on your list. And yet if a teen is telling us this is really the thing I'm struggling with, that's really the thing we want to at least start by helping them support, helping them think about and address. One of the things we know about the adolescent brain is it's like especially primed to crave and analyze this kind of social information that these apps are providing. And it is really interesting because actually once we had that conversation, I went on Venmo and I never have even thought to look at my friend's transactions. But all of a sudden I was having this really weird experience of seeing like, oh, I didn't know those two people who I went to high school with two decades ago were still friends. And it was making me feel so many different kinds of emotions. And in such a tempered way, because on some level, like I really don't care, but I I can just imagine (laughs) and remember that there is a version of myself you know, of my high school self or maybe even my college self who would have had a really different reaction. Like, why are they keeping in touch with each other and not me or whatever it is? So Carrie and I really like, we so often feel like when we can tap empathy for how hard this stuff actually is, we also have a whole pivot in our own brains around like the ways we think about talking to kids. Right. Because even though it's like, I mean, kids are swimming in social information that tells them something about like their, the strength of their connections to their friends, their status within a larger peer group. And, you know, we can all relate to what that was like when we were adolescents. I grew up in the eighties as a teen and I didn't have digital technology, but 
there was all kinds of social information that made, made me feel different ways. And I was really primed to really care about what my peers thought. And so the reality is they're just swimming in this stuff and these subtle features of apps that we don't even tune into are giving them messages. Whether they're interpreting those messages accurately is a whole different thing. And actually, Emily and I are involved in some resource development right now around things like uh, trying to, to address cognitive distortions or ways in which teens get caught up in interpreting something like a Venmo thread where they see friends hanging out and fall into a thinking trap, assuming that this was an intentional move that, or, or being left on read, like you send someone a text message and it, you can see that you've read, received the, rece- the read receipt that suggests they've read it, but they haven't responded. Um, and we can fall into a thinking trap of mind reading, oh, my friend must be mad at me, rather than just pausing and imagining a variety of different explanations for it. So, and we touched on this earlier about, you say the kids want to talk to us, but it doesn't feel that way as a parent. So how are we missing those opportunities? Or really, maybe a better question is, where are those? And are we just not seeing them as opportunities? Well, you know, yes, it's a great, it's a great point. And, you know, even if we use the power move of asking about the positives that I mentioned earlier, sometimes it's going to fall flat or maybe even often depending on your kids. So we can think creatively about context, sometimes it's really hard to sit down and look our teen in the eye and have a conversation with them and them feel comfortable comfortable enough opening up. So shifting up the context, being in the car, for example, where you know everyone has their eyes on the road, not staring at one another, being on a walk can be another generative space. But the other thing is, I mean, I definitely have a kid who, when I ask her any question, even if it's framed in a positive way, she will shrug. She has a hard time articulating feelings, but I know she's listening to me. So I try to find oblique or kind of stealth ways into conversations with her about tech. Like I'll talk about some things. If I really want to know what um, what's going on for her on TikTok, what her emotional experience of it is, I'll open TikTok myself and I'll talk about some of the things that I'm seeing that I think are really cool and interesting and see if that is a way to bring her in. And if I want to open up a conversation about some of the things that are hard, I'll narrate out loud some of the things I'm seeing on Instagram that are raising questions for me. Like, wow, everybody, like, everyone looks so beautiful or everyone looks like they're leading their best lives. That can't really be true, can it? So there are different ways in which we can enter those conversations. Even if our kid doesn't respond, my younger kid in particular, I know she's listening. And so saying some of those things sort of normalizes the wonders and the sense of stress that we can feel by living in this connected world and hopefully lays the groundwork for an opening for her to talk with me or perhaps someone else. Maybe it's a peer. Some of the best help for teens doesn't always come from adults. It comes from other uh, other kids and, you know, those those contexts where they can open up and talk about things that are shared experiences. I had a version of this yesterday because, you know, we obviously calibrate to what we expect and what we're kind of used to in terms of people's communication. And I have a friend who always writes me back right away. And I sent her a text message yesterday morning, and then I sent her an, another one. 
And like half the day had gone by and she hadn't responded. And I do that to other people all the time. So I don't think anything. And there are certain people who I I just know won't respond right away. But this is someone who I'm used to. Like, I know she has her watch on. I know she saw my message. And I started thinking, like, did I do something wrong? Is she annoyed at me? And I actually was using this. Carrie and I have been, you know, Carrie mentioned we've been developing this tool with some of our colleagues to um, really think about how to challenge our own thoughts. So this is like a cognitive behavioral therapy technique, recognizing, oh, I'm falling into a thinking trap. Like, I am mind reading that because she did not respond to my text right away, she must be mad at me. And the the actual, like the CBT thinking skill is to learn, to recognize that there are other interpretations and to actually practice coming up with some of them. So I said to myself, like, okay, I'm doing mind reading right now. What are other reasons that she might not be responding? And I'm like, Maybe she's distracted with her with her kids today. Maybe she's maybe her phone died. Maybe she's not feeling well. Maybe she left her phone out last night and she just hasn't she actually hasn't even seen my text message. Like this these things sound so funny, but even just generating the like those four or five different alternative explanations really helps temper some of your anxiety because you're like, okay, yeah. So it's not just that she's definitely mad at me because she didn't respond for seven hours. And by the way, she she wasn't mad at me at all. She was like, it was one of those things. And and actually, like we have really been trying to figure out how can we help teach those kinds of thinking skills and thinking patterns so that we mitigate some of the anxiety that teens have so consistently told us that they feel. And you know, sometimes what's hard is like sometimes your friends, your friend is mad at you. And especially if you're a teenager, like sometimes your friend is telling you they're mad at you by literally leaving your message on read and not responding. And so it's not, we don't put any blame on teenagers for the fact that like they're feeling or thinking this way. We're just really interested in what, what it looks like to empower them to, to manage some of those feelings when they come up so that they're not so painful. So our final question we're going to ask, we ask all of our guests, what's the biggest myth about raising teenagers and screens? I mean, I think one of the biggest myths is that teens don't understand that they're growing up in a world where content persists, that they don't understand the risks for their futures associated with that. We heard again and again from teens that they really appreciate that their digital footprint lasts forever and they could post something and it could come back to haunt haunt them down the line. They get that. And there are a variety of things, ways in which their digital footprint is out of their control. So their peers co-author their digital footprint. They make mistakes. And so the kind of messaging we feel like we should give them, like, remember, things you post last forever, can often really backfire backfire and fall short for teens who really recognize that. And they need more coaching around how to navigate the fact that there is going to be content out there that lingers. And, you know, how can you, you know, approach that with a growth mindset? Or how can you have conversations with your friends about respecting each other's digital footprints and the ways in which you put content out there in the world? I think we often mistake the habits we see around kids and their phones for a sign that they don't care about connecting with the, with their friends or they don't, you know, they don't care about face-to-face interactions. And one of the things that we started to see so clearly is these technologies are just playing and preying on their developmental sensitivities in such powerful ways. And so even when it looks like they really don't care, they actually are often so receptive to moments when we that we can create for them to connect with 
peers without devices. And we have just had so many examples of this, whether it's like the chance to be at a summer camp that has no devices or to be on a sports game at, at a sports game. And your coach just says like, everyone's phones are not welcome on the bus today. And actually that one of the things that's really powerful is creating space where they are not the only one either on their phone or off of it, but they're in a social setting where they're getting a chance to do that. And when we help model that, they see how much they enjoy it. And then we hear from the older teens things like, yeah, my friend group has a rule that we go out to dinner and we put our phones in a stack in the middle of the table. And the first person who checks their phone has to pay the tip. And that is an example of like them using, they have they have had this experience of seeing and feeling that they connect better with their friends when they're not all distracted by their phones. And they're now creating a social setting to reinforce that. And so scaffolding those kinds of experiences for them, when we recognize that it's just when you're especially a younger teenager, your self-regulation, like you just, you can get in your own way. And so you really do sometimes need help getting there and thinking about how we can create those experiences and really create positive connections. Social connection is the antidote for so many of the things that we are worried about when it comes to teenagers. And so thinking about meaningful ways to support it really matter. Wow. Okay. Psychologist Emily Weinstein and sociologist Carrie James, Harvard researchers and co-authors of Behind Their Screen, What Teens Are Facing and Adults Are Missing. Thank you so much to both of you. Our parents are really going to enjoy this and we look forward to hearing more from both of you. Thanks for joining us for the Your Teen Podcast. If you have any topics that you want us to talk about, let us know on our Facebook page or email editor at yourteenmag.com. If you're someone who reads an article and thinks of that one friend who has to read it too, think of our podcast the same way. Please share with that friend who's going to say, oh my God, I can't believe I didn't know about Your Teen with Sue and Steph. And do us a favor and review and rate the show on the podcast platform of your choice. You can find more from us at yourteenmag.com, at evergreenpodcast.com, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Your Team with Sue and Steph is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producer Michael D'Aloya, plus producer Hannah Leach, and audio engineer Eric Coltnow. We'll see you next time. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? 
These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.